0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash loss. That's plushcare.com slash loss. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate how everything has a history, even the most unexpected of subjects, like baked beans, harbours and rage. Ooh, love a good rage, but also, more importantly, love a good
2: harbour. I went crabbing in many a harbour uh, last week when I was away in Cornwall on holiday. However, we could also do something on green, queen and serene, or... Spleen, ween and preen, which are all about the history of child-rearing and peacocks. (laughs) Which would you you do there, Sam? Which would you add to our list? Baked beans. I can only think of skinheads on a raft.
1: Peacocks and rage. Love it. Let's do peacocks and rage. Both of which are about the French Revolution, I've just (laughs) realised. Of course they are.
2: Of course they are. Uh, We will be, however, following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining... those histories link together in unexpected ways who knew for example sam who knew that the history of the bottom yes the bottom is in fact all about fashion and femininity and masculinity political protest cycling technology the reformation political protest and the invention of comfort in fact it's about political process twice who knew or that the history of puppies is in fact all about family blackmail Breeding and the Victorian Quest for Pedigree Perfection, of course it is. Renaissance Portraits, The Rise of the Pet, Theft and Poverty. What
1: about Mm. that? Very, very good. You're all wondering who is telling you this. Well, this man, he is the marathon of history. So far-reaching is his wisdom that only transatlantic and transpacific do it metaphorical justice. His depth of knowledge can only be compared to the geography of a lunar eclipse. He is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. He is James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello. Hello,
2: person who at the moment is an unattributed voice. And you may well be wondering who he is. Who is this unattributed voice ably helping me co-pilot these episodes? Well, let's just say that if he were a distance-related historian, he'd only be John Winthrop one-time English Puritan lawyer and one of the leading figures in founding the Massachusetts Bay Colony, the second major settlement in New England following the Plymouth Colony, who was long distance across the Atlantic from his wife and family and loved ones and wrote a series of letters to them. This will give you a clue of what I'm going to be talking about. Yes,
1: you've guessed it, is the famous historical adventurer Dr Sam Willis. Hello, everyone. Thank you very much for that wonderful introduction, James. Um, I'm always uh, very interested and inspired by what you're going to write about and I suddenly and talk about and I suddenly realised it would be long-distance letter writing, <laughs> being such an expert on letters. Good for you. Um, guys, we're doing the history of distance, uh, which which uh, I'm very excited about. One of those subjects where we both went, ooh, that's a cracker. Let's let's do that. I, I immediately started thinking about the moon um, mm-hmm. because uh, both Branson and Jeff Bezos uh have been flying up into space recently certainly when we were considering about what the next um topic was going to be i think they 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 seem to fly up there um, on their own egos. That's literally how they do it. Yes. Just, uh, We need hospitals everywhere. We don't need spaceships. It's driving me absolutely bananas. Anyway, um, the point about this is uh, I suddenly thought, how do you how do you measure the distance to the moon? And there's obviously a, an interesting history about that, uh, which I briefly found out. It was first worked out in the 4th century BC by a Greek astronomer called Aristarchus of Samos. So well done, Aristarchus. Um, so anyway, James, I immediately thought about the moon and then went on to think about... Uh, cricket because there's been a lot of the hundred has been on telly my kids are both cricket mad so we um, I was thinking about the the distances involved in cricket particularly the length of the wicket and I did a bit of exploring of that which was very enjoyable indeed and then um, more broadly I thought about um, kind of Establishments of of distances. How yes, you can say that a cricket wicket, for example, is twenty two yards long. But what's a yard? Who actually decides what that is? And that's got its own fascinating history. Um, I also wanted to do something on uh, uh, race walking because the the other thing that's been dominating my time mostly over the, the recent the recent weeks has been the Olympics. And I was thinking about um, the history of distance in terms of competition. And uh, my final thing I thought about uh, was I sat down to a nice bit of leg of lamb the other day. And I wondered how on earth people actually started to get lamb from New Zealand to the UK before refrigeration. This is all about trade. Yeah, all about trade and so, refrigeration and um and uh, yeah just sort of, I like being. I uh, particularly I always do this being inspired by what's happening in my world uh, but this this this, exo- this this week I think it was particularly so everywhere I looked had something to do with distance oh
2: everywhere I looked have had something to do with distance over the last uh, couple of months because I have been reading all about distance uh, I gave a keynote uh, a couple of weeks ago at a brilliant co- conference uh organized by two uh brilliant historians um, and it was called long distance communication hence what I'm going to be talking about today so it's the idea about communicating over distance and I was thinking about distance in in lots of different ways so how one measures distance very much in the same way that you're talking about measuring cricket cricket wickets and that kind of thing. But how do you actually go about measuring distance and units of measurement and how prior to rulers and formal measurements, how did people judge distance? And then how do we think about distance conceptually? So in terms of how far things are? Um, Then we can think about technologies and distance and we can think about overcoming distance. We can think about travel and transport and we can think about the kinds of emerging technologies such as trains, aeroplanes, even things like the telegram and telegraph that allow people to, and of course, you know, as a maritime historian, ships and shipping and how that Closes distance, and there is a history of there's a history of the disappearance of distance, so distance vanishing with those kinds of technologies as the world shrinks and becomes smaller or or so uh, one kind of argument can be can be made then of course, this leads thirdly to the impact of distance so in terms of if you are if you are uh, an empire and are governing at distance, how does that fit? politically, militarily, economically, you know, and we can think about um, about distance geographically, we can think about it socially, um, we can think about the ease to get to places, we can think about travel, we can think about exploration, maps, all of those kinds of things. Uh, what I'm interested in also, as somebody who has worked on letters for what feels like a lifetime, uh, is the emotional side of distance. And one of the things that I'm really keen to look at, and certainly I looked at in the paper that I gave, is this idea of what was the emotional dimension of people living apart, living across long distances. And if you think about it, letter writing is a technology of distance. It is a distant communication because you're you're not in the same room or the same town as somebody. It's not face-to-face interaction. But in fact, you're writing because you are distant and there are all kinds of circumstances where people might be distant from one another and all kinds of sort of letter collections across time that allow you to look at long distance communication and a way of of which ancient to modern societies connected themselves. You know, and think about the the cache of letters at the Roman fort of Vindolanda. Think about something like the Republic of Letters in the 17th and 18th century. Think about families that are separated. Think about the East India Company. Think about other sorts of examples, prisoners, you know, distant from family. Uh, Merchants' correspondence, which is... You know, you're looking at people who are trading together, and they are distant. Or you think about cloistered monks or nuns who are in, in monasteries and nunneries, corresponding at distance with their with their their family. And there are all sorts of ways of of looking at that. We might also think about the ways in which these relationships are maintained the way in which they are gendered so whether women in the family have a particular responsibility for keeping people in touch and together so I'm going to be talking a little bit about that Samuel Willis.
1: Very good let me just um, start you off with a bit of the laws of cricket James because you mm. should always begin with the laws yes, of cricket. Uh, very the good. earliest known um, evidence of this is the code of 1744 and that gives the length of the pitch as 22 yards okay but um You've got to sort of think about how old cricket was and how it was inspired and why they started playing on twenty-two yards. And the the answer to all of this is really, really, genuinely interesting. So, in the Saxon period, there were vague meanings of distance, and they all there were lots of regional variations as well. Um, but it, it, they did gradually become sort of standardised to give a mile. Um, to be eight furlongs, and the mile itself was an old Roman measurement of a thousand double paces. Anyway, so it gets standardised as eight furlongs, uh, and a furlong standing for the word furrow long, which is also the same distance as 320 perches, which is also called rods or poles, or 1,760 yards from the old English gird that meant twig or stick. Or, are you following this, James, five thousand two hundred and eighty feet or sixty-three thousand three hundred and sixty inches, or one hundred and ninety thousand and eighty barley corns. Hmm, which is very good. Anyway, all of this means that the twenty-two yards of a cricket pitch is in fact one tenth of a furlong, or the or a tenth the length of a fur, of a furrow, essentially. Um so, you're realising it actually it's it's linked to something that kind of pre-exists. It wasn't random that those 22 yards existed. So it was a tenth of of that furlong. Um, there was an equally vague Saxon square measurement of land, um, the hide, called um, also. Carucate, from the Latin for a plough and ploughland, which was the area required by one free family with dependents that could be ploughed with one plough and eight oxen in one year. This in turn is divided into four yard lands or 100 acres, the definition of which is the amount of land that could be ploughed by one yoke of oxen in one day. You've got to bear with me because it's all coming to something here. In Norman times, the acre becomes precisely defined as 40 by 4 perches, thus preserving the Shape of the Saxon strip acre, which is one furlong by one tenth of a furlong, and that means that a cricket pitch is exactly, and very simply, it is the breadth of a Saxon strip acre. So it's a, it's the breadth of a strip of Anglo-Saxon farmland, which I thought was fascinating. That's a cricket pitch. <laughs> that's a that's a cricket pitch, and there is another measurement of the the distance. I, I won't go into this too much, but the distance between the bowling crease and the popping crease. So where you stand and bat, that also has its own um, its own kind of meanings and origins. And it was actually all to do with uh, with the uh, the distance for measuring cloth. In fact. Um, And it would have been a very familiar measurement. It's 45 inches. It would have been a very familiar measurement to areas of England where they produced wool, um, particularly around somewhere like the Weald, that area between London and the South Coast, very famous for its sheep, produced wool. And that is also where cricket originated from. So they're playing on a strip which is made up of um, uh, measurements of distance that they were already very familiar with. In other aspects of their lives. In the case of the crease, it was it was um, to do with wool manufacture and cloth and in terms of the wickets to do with farming.
2: Oh, my gosh. So many questions about the
1: length and distance of the run up and and also (laughs) the the length of the boundary. Uh, that, yeah, interesting. So um, th- that's not regulated at all. You can have huh. um, any any size. So that distance is is not regulated, which is why you have pitches like the Oval, which are bigger than the Lords, which is smaller. Oh,
2: goodness me, I learn something
1: every day from you, Sam Willis. <laughs> very good, very good. Any more on cricket, or will you be returning to that? Um, no more on cricket. I will. Um, I will leave our, those of us who don't like cricket. Um, I will be able to listen to James talk about letters. <laughs> no, no, no. I lo- <laughs>
2: Excellent. Now, I'm a big cricket fan, uh, huge fan, uh, uh, but didn't know anything about the distance of creases, uh, however yeah, I do now. And
1: it it's one of those great historical exp- explanations that suddenly makes complete sense. And they wouldn't have just suddenly randomly come up at 22 yards, but they would have probably played across a strip of farmland. And it's all, of course, it's connected to Anglo-Saxon um land, isn't it? Of course yeah, it is. So, and land parceling up and, yes. you know, dividing and land ownership. There's, um you know, a, a, once you start trying to understand how you parcel up and divide and divide land and share land, it raises a, a huge number of, of political issues.
2: Yeah. Brilliant. And, uh, and, and Brilliant.
1: fascinating histories in their own right.
2: Brilliant. OK. Distant communications. I started off talking about this. And what I'm interested in here, in telling you about, is the way in which we can look at people's conceptions of of distance how they thought about distance when they were parted because as I said that letter the letter or letter writing is a is a technology of separation so it comes about simply because you are you are parted and so letters across time are constantly full of themes about distance and absence and being separate from each other and the amount of time that they're apart and the the physical distance that they're apart from each other and I want to start with a letter, a personally written distant communication written by the Kentish knight politician and antiquary Sir Edward During to his third wife unton During, and it's dated just before the English Civil War on the first of July sixteen thirty four and it's sent from London to their family seat in Kent, some 60 miles or so away, at a place called Surrendon During, which is their family home. And During writes to his wife, My dear heart, so he's writing affectionately, this absence of mine is, in all the circumstances of it, the most of any. He continues by describing legal and business affairs in London before ending with dutiful affection, Dear numps, bear my absence patiently, or else come chide me here, but truly chiding will not mend me, for my utmost endeavour is to be with thee. Now, this letter is simply one of a whole series of letters that he wrote to his wife between 1629 and 1642. So, this is the very turbulent period building up to the Civil War, and it drew him away from home during this period for extended lengths of time. Parliament was 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 closed, um, but he was very sort of active in business uh, up, in, up in London. Um, and what it gives us is, I think, a snapshot from a husband's point of view of how one 17th century couple conducted their marriage at a distance. So balanced alongside the sort of day-to-day negotiation of how they run the household and the estate expressions of affection is a really deep underlying consciousness of being apart of being separated and in fact of distance so they're really conceptualizing and thinking of distance and one of the things that I was saying about earlier on is I think letter writing and certainly early modern letter writing so 16th and 17th century letter writing is very much unrivaled as a technology of distant communication between sender and recipient. I think this is very much hardwired into its DNA. So if you think about the writing process, the blank page that you have before you in a piece of writing paper is a site for introspection, so thinking about oneself, thinking about how you think about yourself in relation to family and the community and and where you are. And I would argue that this letter that I've been talking about is in fact representative of most surviving correspondence between the late 15th century through to the 18th century, so through to about 1700, which basically came into being because people lived apart. And I would argue that this period is also an epoch for long distance communications. In other words, that the letters written during this period are distinct from later Generations because of largely because of things they're prior to things like the invention of technologies like the telegram or the telephone in the 19th century, it's prior to the 18th century democratization of letter writing culture and the routine reliability of national and global postal networks, in other words all of these things that allow for rapid, regularised, reliable communication and movements of people that shrink distance, in actual fact, in the 16th and 17th centuries, it's the irregularity and unreliability of postal conditions that make letters particularly distinct. And there's a quality of social anxiety and longing to correspondence. The act of letter writing itself heightens emotional responses to distance and I'll just give you some examples of this and there's a very interesting example um, from the Lyle letters in the 1530s Um, and what we can see here is you know real sort of is real sort of irregularities in postal conditions and the impact that this has not only on business but also on personal relationships and I think this comes through in this brilliant collection from the 1530s um, in the letters from Honour Lady Lyle and her husband Arthur Lord Lyle. He's the Deputy Lieutenant of Calais during this period. He's related to Henry VIII He gets into all sorts of trouble, accused of treason, all the family letters are confiscated, and they are one of the most brilliant archival records that we have for the reign of Henry VIII. And one of the things that I think is really interesting is a little sort of collection of letters between husband and wife that date from the 7th of November, 1538 And this is a period when Lady Lyle is away from Calais, she's away from her husband, she's journeying to London and she's away for five weeks negotiating the business of a crown annuity, in other words a pension that the crown is going to pay um, to the Lyles and her mission takes her to the heart of the Tudor court I mean, they're astonishing, these letters. There's a, a description of an early morning meeting with Thomas Cromwell, and she she describes this in, in real detail. And during this time when she's away, the couple were frequently in touch to discuss the minutiae of her business. And the letters were conveyed by an army of personal messengers crisscrossing channel via a postal bark, in other words a a, a sort of ship uh, between Calais and Dover, Um, but the correspondence is full of complaints about delays, letters not arriving, appalling servants who fail to do what they want them to do, and alongside these practical and legal concerns there's there's a real sort of um, candour with which these letters, many of which were dictated, about their separation and the distance being apart from each other and they they sort of and I think the the emotions here are quite raw and take for example her first letter home after arriving in England Lady Lyle informs her husband of the rough crossing and she's clearly upset by the fact that she'd not managed to say farewell to him properly when she embarked. What seems to have happened is there's been real confusion about whether her husband is on the boat or not, uh, whether they've had time to say goodbye, and she's at great pains in this letter to explain why she hadn't written sooner um, and full of sort of apologies about, about not saying goodbye to him properly. Your absence and my departure, she wrote, maketh heavy, also, for that I departed at the stair at Calais, so hastily without taking my leave of you accordingly. But I assure you, my lord, I thought you had been in the boat, adding that a servant who promised to attend her for a token and letter from her to him had left without warning.
0: There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. That's stamps.com. Code program.
2: And basically, this is a couple who are in their later years of life. Lyle is in his 70s. He's pretty elderly here. And they were clearly unused to being distant from each other. They were ill at ease with cross channel communications, particularly during a turbulent period in their fortunes. And at the height of Protracted negotiations over the annuity, she, Lady Lyle, writes very confidentially to her husband I can neither sleep, nor eat, nor drink that doth me good. My heart is so heavy and so full of sorrow, which I know well will never be lighted till I be with you. And then she adds in a postscript, I beseech you, keep my letters close or burn them, for though I have sorrows, I would no creature should be partaker nor knowledge with me. And after his wife has left, after she's departed, Lyle promises for his part that he would keep little company in mourning for her absence, declaring there is no man living would gladlier have by his wife's company than I would have for yours, never thought so long for you. And he repeats this in many of his letters. So, in other words, separation is very much heightened in these letters by the delays and silences of, you know, what are real uncertainties in actually getting these letters delivered. And distance is very much perceived, conceptualised. It's a lived experience about not knowing or or and imagining what the other one is up to elsewhere, and it's also articulated by a very deep sense of longing, and the correspondence in itself is, you know, we have real sort of gendered roles in reversal here. If you think about the way in which correspondence might work in gendered forms, normally it would be the the wife within the household um writing about household things, the husband, you know, away, rather like the the um the letter that we that I sort of started with, uh the During letter. But what we have here is in fact a reversal of that. You know, Lady Lyle is overseas reporting the goings on from court, while her husband, by contrast, reminds her of life at home. Now, one sort of final thing to sort of end here is what we're looking at there is the 1530s. What's extraordinary is having a look at transatlantic family correspondence where distance is very much more pronounced where you actually have the physical barrier of the atlantic ocean you know so there are real geographical distances and constraints on communications between relatives in england and new england and while correspondents knew the names schedules embarkation points of ships you know they knew ships crossing the seas, the passage of transatlantic correspondence during the 17th century was beset with, with problems. So shipwrecks, miscarriage of post, lengthy delays, and these condition expectations of correspondence and strained the relationships lived apart as a result of trade, migration and demands for religious toleration, which encouraged people to go and live in the in the new world and what you notice is that there are huge collections of transatlantic correspondence from very sort of religious individuals who go over to America to start a new a new life with with religious freedom and 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 toleration and the themes of distance are so prominent in their in their letters so again we've got this sort of conceptualization of 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 distance. So John Winthrop, who I likened you to at the beginning, Sam, wrote to his son on the 28th of March 1631, "'This ship staying so long here, I am almost out of hope that my letters should come, although I think very long till I see you.' Thomas Gwynne wrote on the second of October, sixteen ninety two, to his friend and brother, William Ellis, thanking him for his letters, gladdened that he had a place in thy remembrance, which will not, I hope, be blotted out, though our abodes are at so great a distance. Mary Downing wrote to her father, Emmanuel Dowling, on the twenty seventh of November, sixteen thirty five, I have found so much your love, and see that neither time nor distance of place doth diminish or blast the same which I confess and desire to acknowledge as a great mercy and the chief comfort for a temporal that I have to solace myself withal, adding, Dear Father, I am far distant from you and know not how long it will please the Lord to continue it so, but howsoever I desire to rest satisfied with his will and do earnestly desire to submit myself in all duty and obedience as belong of and to a child, to yourself and my mother, as if I were with you. And that's in a collection edited by Everett Emerson called Letters from New England. So I think what we've got, here then is just a sort of little snapshot of how uh, correspondence can be used to study relationships at a a distance. The ways in which um, letters were used to maintain relationships when people were living uh, far from each other uh, in the 16th and 17th centuries. Uh, For more, uh, a later installment, uh, this will be published very soon So watch this
1: space. There we are, Sam. Mm. Uh, Distance and correspondence. Very good. Love that. Um, So I was inspired by by the uh, athletics on the Olympics. Really enjoyed that. And the Paralympics are starting tomorrow, I think. So I'm looking forward to seeing how that pans out as well. And it made me think of my friend Giles, who raised some money for um, the Cure Parkinson's Trust, Bowel Cancer UK and um, the RNL Lifeboats. Giles works on the uh, London Lifeboats. And he decided. I'm not sure how and when this came into his brain that he was going to walk 225 kilometres. It's 140 miles in 72 hours with only two hours sleep. Gosh. (laughs) Yep. Gosh. And he did it. And he walked around Richmond Park. And I think he he hallucinated through uh, the last the last uh, several hours. But he made it. And I think everything was okay. But it it did. uh, made me think, well, why, how long has this been going on and what are people doing? Uh, unsurprisingly, race walking has got an extraordinary history. I mean, it, it wouldn't kind of have got into the Olympics if there wasn't a long history of competitive race walking. And it does begin in Britain. It was popularised. It was professionalised. and um, It was made particularly popular through gambling, unsurprisingly, the 18th and 19th centuries. Um, There's even a description to it uh, from Samuel Pepys in his diary in July 1663. The town talk this day is of nothing but the great foot race run this day on Banstead Downs between Lee, the Duke of Richmond's footman, and a tyler, a famous runner. And Lee hath beat him, though the King and Duke of York and all men almost did bet three or four to one upon the tyler's head. So there's a lovely example of 17th century uh, gambling on race walking there. It was actually called pedestrianism, James, which I think is the best word ever invented for uh, competitive walking. So pedestrianism, uh, codified in the 1800s. And that was lucky because it was just in time for, I think, the most famous participant of them all, the captain, the guy called Captain Robert Barclay Allardyce of Stonehaven in Kincardinshire. I don't know where that is, and I apologise. Um... And th- these are some of his most extraordinary walking exploits, James. Very enjoyable. In 1801, he walked 110 miles in 19 hours in a muddy park. <laughs> I like that. 1802, he walked 64 miles in 10 hours. 1805, he walked 72 miles between breakfast and dinner. So no, no specific times there. Maybe that's just about, about not eating. So he had some breakfast and then um, maybe he had lunch or I don't know, had lunch. But anyway, he managed to walk 72 miles. He then walked uh, 1806, he walks 100 miles over bad roads in 19 hours. 1807, he walks 78 miles on hilly roads in 14 hours. But his most famous walk takes place in July 1809, does it, in Newmarket. And he manages to walk one mile in each of 1,000 successive hours. Which, the more you think about that sentence, is ex- completely extraordinary. So, the, I mean, how long does it take to walk a mile if, you, if you're going, full on 20 minutes? Yeah, three, three, four miles an hour, I reckon okay. you could do. So, the longest sleep he had was 40 minutes. Gosh. And he did that over a thousand hours. So, uh, four and a bit days. Five days. I can't do my, yeah. A thousand hours, yeah, a thousand successive hours my gosh that's that's
2: a lot longer than four days. Oh no, it is it is my maths has
1: completely failed me.
2: <laughs> so I'm going to get my calculator out <laughs> <Yeah>. a thousand <laughs> divided by twenty four okay, here we go, wait for it, drum roll. oh my God, <laughs> it's forty it's over a month it's forty one point six 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 recurring days. That's is a it? long old time.
1: Wow. That's enjoyable, Sam Willis. It it, it made the times. I'll bet it did make the times. Yeah. The gentleman on Wednesday completed his arduous pedestrian undertaking to walk a thousand miles in a thousand successive hours at the rate of a mile in each and every hour. He had until four o'clock p.m. to finish his task, but he performed his last mile in the quarter of an hour after three with perfect ease and great spirit amidst an immense concourse of spectators. The influx of company had so much increased on Sunday that it was recommended that the ground should be roped in. To this, Captain Barclay at first objected, but the crowd became so great on Monday and he had experienced so much interruption that he was at last prevailed upon to allow this precaution to be taken. For the last two days, he appeared in higher spirits and performed his walk with apparently more ease and in shorter time than he had done for some days before. With the change of the weather, he had thrown off his loose greatcoat, which he wore during the rainy period, and on Wednesday performed in a flannel jacket. He also put on shoes thicker than any which he had used in the earlier part of his performance. He said that during the first night after his walk, he would have himself awoke twice or thrice to avoid the danger of a too sudden transition from almost constant exertion to a state of long repose. One hundred to one and indeed any odds whatever were offered on Wednesday. But so strong was the confidence in his success that no bets could be obtained the multitude of people who resorted to the scene of action in the course of the concluding days was unprecedented. Not a bed could be procured on Tuesday night at Newmarket, Cambridge or any of the towns and villages in the vicinity. And every horse and every species of vehicle was engaged. Among the nobility and gentry who witnessed the conclusion of this extraordinary feat were the Dukes of Argyle and St Albans, the Earl Grosvenor, Besper and Jersey, Lords Foley and Somerville, Sir John Lodes, Sir F. Standish, And many, many more. Captain Barclay had a large sum depending upon his undertaking. The aggregate of the bets is supposed to amount to £100,000. And um, extraordinary. He lost two stone, four pounds during it. I need to lose some weight, James. Maybe I should try this. I think you should. Yeah, yeah. Uh, (laughs) 41. I'm not saying you should lose weight. Uh, I haven't seen you for a while. You're normally
2: looking so fit and svelte. Um, But should you wish to lose weight, I think it would be a, a superb way
1: to lose weight. Yeah, yeah. Very Um, good. So they are, a bit of of race walking. What else have you got for us, James? Anything? A very small little bit from uh, one of my favourite books
2: uh, by Emmanuel Leroy Laddery, the brilliant French historian, uh, about the... Medieval village Montailloux, and we've talked about this in the past, but for those of you who who don't know about this, this is a Cathar village in the south of France. It's still there. You can go along and see it. And the book is based on Inquisition records from 1318 to 1325, when the local bishop came along, took interest in this area and basically performed an, an Inquisition. And what we have is all sorts of depositions, from ordinary folk uh, who lived in this in this village in the Pyrenees, and one of the chapters in this book is about uh, space and time, and I think when we looked at um, clocks, I talked about how the villagers conceived of. Of time and different sort of measurements and the calendar and how, in some ways, they are outside of history because time living up in the mountains, history and time sort of, you know, doesn't have a sort of you know as much of a, a meaning as it might do in 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 towns uh, and in the in the lowlands. Um, this particular section that I'm going to talk about here, very very briefly, is how they talk about distance, so how they perceive space. Whether it's geographical, sociological, or whether it's cultural, and yeah, you know, this sort of links to what you were talking about earlier on about the cricket wicket, Sam, and the length mm-hmm. of the the length of the pitch. I mean, how do people who don't have uh, standardised measurements think about distance and think about measuring things? And quite often, you know, they're thinking about the measuring them in terms of the hand or the arm as those sort of ready reckoners for. For for sort of short distances, and there are a couple of couple of examples. Uh, one of the um, deponents, uh, Guillemett Clegg, uh, uh, deposed: "I saw Pradres Tavernier reading in the rays of the sun a black book as long as my own hand." Another said: "I was sunning myself behind my house, and four or five spans away." Guillaume Andaram was reading a book. Uh, another uh, recorded, um, Prades Tavernay, who was carrying four or five landskins round his neck, walked along keeping a constant distance of a crossbow shot between himself and the road. So this is not only how you look at distances around the bodily person, but also how you might look at shorter distances of of walking, for example. If you look here thinking about longer distances, these the villagers tended to measure in terms of a league or a stage of a journey or a stage of migration. And what what this gets us to think about is is distance in relation to spatial geography, and in this mountaintop village of Montau, people wouldn't simply go from point A to B. So on a on an itinerary, they would go up and down the mountain. So they would have to follow particular particular passes. But it it's argued that people didn't really feel that sort of deeply concerned about space, and that when they think about space, it was it was really it really worked around two main ideas one was the body so a body was a way of measuring the world uh in the first place and then the house so the world was measured in relation to the house you know where they lived so for example one of the deponents says if you want to have an idea of heaven Imagine a large house stretching from the Merin Pass to the town of Toulouse, so we can start thinking the way in which getting into their mental world, the way in which they thought of distance, the way in which they conceived of places, the way in which they conceived of geography um if you look at how they how they um organized the land. Uh, surveyors drew up land registers of languedoc and they defined fields in terms of points of a compass but in 1310 the people in montaigu didn't describe land in, in such ways they didn't describe it they simply talked about journeys as a, in a sort of in terms of a series of towns along the way so rather like a an itinerary so first you go to mevoir then to beauville then to caraman and there you ask the way to Rabasten, so that's the way in which they might think about journeying you know from one place to another through a sort of series of itineraries and checkpoints as you go through um They never talk about the the about about directions in terms of the rising or setting sun or north south east, or west. It's much more in location to particular places, so you might speak of going. To Catalonia, in other words, going south or towards the lowlands, in other words, to the north or beyond the mountains, towards the sea, towards Toulouse and so on. And this then gets us thinking about how people living in the mountains move around, you know, um, how they move from one place to another. What kind of contact do they have with people? Um, There is contact by You know, the way in which they might walk from one place to another, going through passes, along tracks, up and down the mountain. There's also the way in which they might have contact through intermarriage, so marrying people from another village. And of course, this sense of distance being traversed, we can connect to commerce, culture, um, sociability, friends, family, you know, all kinds of sort of historical topics like this and then we can connect that that sort of traversing distance spanning that distance to migration seasonal migration that links Montague to places that are a long distance away we can think about how ideas and gossip and news travel along that we can think about the way in which um, servant maids and seasonal workers coming into Montague. To work again, bridge that distance, and allow for social and cultural contact. Um, so that's just a sort of a little example of how, if we're thinking about more primitive peasant-based societies in the medieval period in a mountain um, setting, we need to think about distance in in a very sort of a very sort of um, subtle and and flexible way. So that we can actually sort of see how they how they judge distances and how as historians we look at the impact that distance may have had on their on their lives. So there we are, Sam. A uh,
1: little bit of medieval peasantry for you. Very good. I'm going to finish up with my lamb. And Excellent. To, um, whenever you eat food, guys, think about the amount of distance it's covered. It's um, it's quite an important food modern thing. Food miles. To yeah. Try and eat local if you can. Grow it yourself if you can. Um it all went wrong, I think, with the Dunedin, this ship, 1882, sails from New Zealand to the UK. It's the first ship to successfully carry a cargo of refrigerated meat from, uh, from New Zealand to the UK and then it transformed um, the way that we, we eat and sell and buy food. 1882, and she sailed with 4,331 mutton, 598 lamb and 22 pig carcasses, 250 kegs of butter, hare pheasant turkey chicken, 2,226 sheep's tons. Pretty gross. Uh, At one point on the voyage, the crew noticed that the cold air in the hold wasn't circulating properly. And so the captain took himself down there, burrowed into the hole um, to cut out extra air holes and nearly froze to death in the process. But he risked his life because he really understood the importance of saving the cargo. And um, it was going to become vitally important in encouraging trade between New Zealand and the UK. People were going to make fortunes. Um, And when they got there, only one carcass was unsaleable and British butchers were pleasantly surprised at the meat's quality. Um, A little review in the Times, they said, today we have to record such a triumph over physical difficulties as would have been incredible, even unimaginable, just a few years ago. So imagine yourself in the uh, the late 1870s, no chance of carrying uh, refrigerated cargo that distance. But by 1882, Some very clever people had just about sorted it out and it changed the way that the world eats. I think that's a wonderful place for us to end. Time for me to go and get some supper, James. Um, I hope you've all enjoyed this, The History of Distance. We've got a number of exciting things coming your way. Um, Pigeons and rage, I think, are the two I'm quite looking forward to. James, can you cope with those? Excellent. Love them. Love (laughs) them. Um, if you uh, do, please get in touch on social media, guys. Please follow me on Twitter. I'm at Dr. Sam Willis and also Instagram. And if you are in, like that story about um, the Dunedin, do please check out my podcast on maritime history. It's called The Mariner's Mirror.
2: And if you'd like to follow me uh, on Twitter, I'm at James Dable. The podcast is at Unexpected Pod. We are also all over social media. We are on Instagram, Facebook. We have a very swanky website, historiesoftheunexpected.com, where you can find out everything that we have been up to and look at our back catalogue of podcast episodes. Uh, And also we have a Patreon page. So if you are feeling in any way charitable and have any sort of little amount that you can afford to
1: part with to help fund our podcast that would be wonderful absolutely brilliant guys and we'd really appreciate any help you could offer thank you all so much for listening we'll be back again soon cheerio
2: take care guys i'm about to go and uh forage for radishes and blackberries uh in a an attempt to eat local oh good stuff